and not just saying this is me against your belief, but being willing to be wrong and also always reading the other person's opinion. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to episode 51 of the Assyrian Podcast. My name is Adessa and I am your host for this week's episode. 50 episodes have gone by and some of you have probably wondered if the founder Steve would ever be interviewed. The guy is a man of mystery, but I finally convinced him to sit down and put the spotlight on him. We talked about a range of things from AOL screen names to hermeneutics to technology. If you don't know what hermeneutics is, keep listening because you'll find out later on in the episode. Steve works in the technology sector, helping schools to leverage the power of technology to meet their mission. He obtained a bachelor's degree in computer information systems from California State University Stanislaus in Turlock, California. And then there's this whole other side to Steve, which many of you who only know him through the podcast might not know, and that is his passion for the grand narrative of things, which led him to earn a master's of theology at Dallas Theological Seminary in Texas. Steve has been mixing technology and theology for a number of years, which led him to write a book about ethnicity and faith. I won't say too much else as I don't want to spoil the episode, but I will say this. This podcast is a place where all ideas and perspectives are welcomed. We have no one narrative, and that is on purpose. As Assyrians, we share a wide spectrum of thoughts, perspectives, and identities outside of being Assyrian. And it is through listening to different people's perspectives that we expand our understanding of one another. Whether you adhere to a particular faith or find yourself questioning it all, I think you'll really appreciate listening to this episode. Before we begin, I've got to give a shout out to both of our sponsors. Support for this podcast comes from Tony Caligarakis and the Injury Lawyers of Illinois and New York. If you know anyone that has been in a serious accident, please reach out to Tony Caligarakis. Tony has been recognized as a top 40 lawyer and a rising star by Super Lawyers Publication and has obtained multiple multi-million dollar awards. Tony can be reached at injuryrights.com or 847 982 Support also comes from John Oshana with HomeSmart. Whether you are thinking about purchasing or selling your home, either in Arizona or California, contact John Oshana Real Estate Professional at 209-968-9519 on Facebook at John Oshana Realtor or at John Oshana on Instagram. Now, without further ado, here is Steve Netness. So Steve Netness, the godfather of the Assyrian podcast. Ooh, I like that. Godfather. How does it feel to be on that side? I much would rather be on your side. (laughs) Now I'm realizing how vulnerable people are because you can ask me anything right now. And so I'm at your mercy. But I, I do have a plan to try to take over this interview. All right. Let's see if that comes to fruition. So you were born and raised in 209, a.k.a. Turlock. That's right, T-Town. What did being a Syrian mean to you when you were growing up in 209? I really actually loved being an Assyrian growing up in Turlock, and those of us that are from Turlock can totally relate. Uh, we had our own group. We were very tribal. Like, this is my age group. We went to Kroll School. Uh, we all hung out together at the, the junior high. We 
we were very close knit and we were very prideful about being a Syrian, but we didn't really know. We just, we knew we were a Syrian. We didn't just beyond like being a young person who's proud of their background and heritage. But I do remember, for example, uh, we would write like AP on our binders. Mm-hmm. Um, so a it Syrian was, podcast? No. Yeah, that's <laughs> awesome. Yes, we were foreshadowing before the iPod was even invented. No, but we were proud about being a Syrian and we tied our identity into it to a degree. We also made fun of it. And then also we used to always say like, we don't speak as much as Syrian except for if we want to talk about someone. Yeah. So one other thing related to that, my closest friend growing up is a guy named Elia and I actually taught him how to speak English because he moved here from Iran Mm -hmm. and him and I bonded and you know, to the, like, I'm going there this weekend. So that was another way in which being an Assyrian, it made a huge impact. Nice. How much of that had to do with people in Turlock being familiar with who Assyrians were or not? I mean, we were definitely an ethnic minority. We are an ethnic minority, but we weren't the only ethnic minority. I think that's something people don't get as much about Turlock. Um, there's a, there's a large Hispanic Portuguese population as well. So Assyrian people are not the only ethnic minority there. And we all we all kind of understood each other. We all understood the different groups and we could connect with them on certain levels and then not connect. And yeah. For people that are not so familiar with Turlock, could you sort of paint a picture of what life is like there and what it was like growing up? Well, my parents actually moved to Turlock in 1980 and... Turlock was a very small town, agricultural. It was in the Guinness Book of Records for being the watermelon capital, I believe, at one time. Really? Yes. Lots of water. If you go to CSU Stanislaus, California State University Stanislaus, which is university in Turlock, uh, there's a lot of water there because it's got like a lot of water underground. The other thing to know about Turlock, it was also in the Guinness Book of Records for most churches per capita. So that's actually a part of the aura, at least when I was growing up there. People were very strong opinions, um, especially when it comes to religion and that kind of thing. I mean, literally, there's like, it was in the Guinness Book of Records for most churches per capita. Did you know that about Turlock? I did not know that. I also know that it was like known for dairy as well. Mm -hmm. Maybe the dairy capital. Yeah, we call it like Cowtown. (laughs) And even now when I'm driving through there, I just see buildings that used to be fields that we'd hang out in. Okay, wait, you got to know this about growing up in Turlock. Yes. So like I told you, Elia was you know my best friend growing up. We, we walked the whole town. We walked, we rode our bikes. You just spent time outside playing in the yard. The good old days. It was the good old days. It was fun. It was a lot of fun. And so this was before iPhones, iPads. You were doing everything to be out and about with your friends. Except for my very good Nintendo addiction. Mm. I mean, it was pretty legit addiction to like when Super Mario 3 came out, that was a huge, like big news in my life. Uh, Zelda, all those games. And, you know, my brother and I actually were able to record uh, the endings of Super Nintendo or regular Nintendo. We, you know, it took you a long time. You had to keep it on. And if, if you ever, if your mom was mad at you or something, they just come unplug it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Which would be the worst. Especially, would that happen often? Especially imagine like an Assyrian mom. You know, when they unplug it, it's like there's a war that's about to break down. But anyway, we we were able to pass games and then we would record the endings on VHS tape. Nice. 
Like we had a converter from a Nintendo to a VHS. So th- those are the kinds of things we did. You say brother. Is that an older brother? I have two brothers, an older and a younger brother. So yeah, the three of us. And I also have an oldest sister. And she was pretty good at Zelda as well. Very nice. So four of you total? Mm-hmm. What was family life like? Well, my parents, obviously two immigrants from Iran. My dad worked full-time. He worked night shift. You said they moved to Turlock. Was it straight from Iran? They moved to they Turlock? They went to Greece, and then they came to Turlock. Okay. So and why Turlock? We had cousins who told us to nice. come there. Were they happy or? Proud. My parents are very proud. Dad still you know, talks about moving us here and what that meant and all the opportunities we now have. Like when my dad and my mom, when they know the industries my siblings and I are in and the work we're doing there, they feel so successful from, from coming over here. But uh, both my parents worked very hard. My dad worked at Foster Farms Chicken Factory, he worked night shifts, did it his whole life, then he retired. Uh, my mom worked at convalescent homes as a nurse's assistant and CNA and that kind of thing. What's CNA? I think it's like certified nurse's assistant. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure though. And, you know, if my mom's listening to this, I'm sorry if I got that wrong. But they worked a lot. So, we grew up in a home where there wasn't as much supervision. And I mentioned that because it did give me at a young age, like I had a lot of freedom. And what did you do with that freedom? Caused a lot of trouble, got into a lot of trouble. Ellie and I, we, you know, we made sure we caused a lot of trouble. <laughs> some things I can repeat and some things, you know, we keep to ourselves. But I will say that I think I might have been 13 or 14 and I got a I got a Commodore 64 computer and then I got a Pentium computer. And so I was I was growing up at the rise of the internet. And so that was also a, a transformational thing for me because imagine before that time you had like yellow pages or you go to the library to research and the internet. It was the wild west of AOL and messaging people and friends. Lots of fun stuff going on there. Did you used to have an AIM account? I had many AIM accounts because, of course, my parents wouldn't buy us uh, AOL accounts, so I had to borrow them from my friends. (laughs) And at that time, they had to create you a screen name, so I'd have to change my screen name every few months. But I had like, I had a uh, one that I used over and over. Do you remember? I do. What is it? Oh my gosh! Uh, My first one was Floyd for all seven. Who's Floyd? So I was really growing up into Pink Floyd. Ah, okay. Into classic rock. Yeah. And also uh, I listened to some deep dance music called Disco Floyd. Ooh. Yeah. So What's that like? It's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. I don't remember. I need to YouTube this. We took it off of cassette and we converted it onto CD. That's how much we liked it. Wow. So we still have that. But I got into techno and deep dance and I loved classic rock. Beatles, Doors, Moody Blues, Rolling Stones, Pink Floyd, all that, all that stuff. So I did Floyd for all seven because it must have started as Floyd one. And then I had to keep you know, getting new names. And did that, I mean, were your parents listening to that music? It's funny. My mom and dad are sort of, they're totally different from one another in this sense. My dad was like an, a Syrian hippie. And I don't know if you'd like me to say that about him. But, you know, when he was younger, he had a motorcycle, long oh, nice. beard just loved classic rock went to rolling stones concerts um and my mom 
she'll listen to Assyrian music. And so, yeah, my dad, my dad got us hooked in at a very early age to classic rock. Nice. It seems like you got the best of both worlds, two very different genres of music. As a young kid, my, the Assyrian music never stuck very much for it me. It didn't. You just couldn't connect to it? Yeah, and I think it was just slower. Yeah. It's just kind of a it had more of a and now I appreciate it. Yeah. But same. when I was younger I was like, mm. Yeah. <laughs> so growing up in Turlock, what did other people think about Assyrians? Was there a sort of stereotype that was known or anything? I think we were valued in the Assyria in the Turlock community. Assyrians have been pillars in that community. John Lazar was a mayor for a long time. We even now we have city councilmen, so I think People really like Assyrian people in Turlock. Nice. You you ended up doing your undergrad there at Stanislaus State, mm-hmm. and you did it in a Bachelor's of Science in Computer Information Systems. Mm-hmm. You were talking about earlier that you had some computers early on. So is that where your curiosity and interest in computers stemmed from? Yeah, I've always been wired that way. Like I said, we were we were trying to figure out how to hook up our Nintendo to our VCR, mm-hmm. something most people probably were not even thinking about. Um, w- one of my hobbies when I was a kid, and this was because of my dad, is I'd go find receivers like amplifiers that I'd go to garage sales and see when they were burned out. And then I'd try to open them up and switch out a resistor and see where maybe there's smoke on the hood to see if I could fix it and have my own. Like I was into having a sound system. Like a lot of other Assyrians, we were into having loud speakers in our cars and all yeah, that kind of trunk. thing. In the yeah. trunk. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I had I had some until they got stolen. And that was when I was like, okay, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. So then what led you to want to first stay in Turlock for, um, for your degree and then go into computer information systems? Well, I... Wanted to do something I was good at, wanted to do something that would make money, as vain as it might sound. As an Assyrian, we were raised to think about financially, you know. So I would say I got lucky to a degree that I do appreciate technology, and I'm very thankful for my... It happened to coincide uh, with what I am good at and what I enjoy doing. So I ended up, you know, I went to Turlock High School and then went to CSU Stanislaus, thankfully, and just chose computer information systems as my track. So you finished, you graduated at Stan State Computer Information Systems, and then you have this totally other side to you. At some point, you end up getting a master's in theology in Dallas, Texas. So at what point did you decide that you were going to leave Turlock and what influenced you to want to go to the direction of theology? So my parents didn't really go to church. My dad's Chaldean Catholic, or at least that's how we would identify. My mom's you know, heavy into Syrian Church of the East. And um, so growing up, they both worked a lot. Around the age of 14, 15, there was one guy who made a big impact on my life. This guy named Bill Larson. People in Turlock know that name. They know who that is. Uh, he was a substitute teacher who talked to people about God. Um, and he had... Assyrian? No. Oh, no. Uh, American guy. Um, and he's a, a really good man. A really good man. Well-intentioned. Um, but he was your classic sort of evangelist. So my friend Ellie and I, we connected with Bill. And Bill would talk about God in a way that made it feel personal. 
And growing up in an Assyrian home, when you think about God, and especially, and this isn't a knock on Assyrian churches, at least when I was growing up, it was more this way. I never felt like I connected. Mm. I'd go to Assyrian church, didn't understand what the person was saying. Even when we did go, it was, I just didn't get much out of it. So this guy, Bill, entered my life, um, and it was the first time where someone spoke about God in a way that was personal. And I felt like, whoa, this could actually help me to live a better life, live a healthier life. And Bill had some very clear ideas on who God was. And as a young person, it was formative. It was very formative. He was very direct and clear. He actually brought the gift of feeling like God could be accessible, that it isn't just for holy people at the church that wear certain outfits, that even Steve could open up my Bible and study and learn and get something from it. So around the age of 15, he came to my life and he had a very, I don't want to use the word conservative because I don't really like those labels, but some would classify him as very conservative. And for me personally, I was very intrigued. I was drawn into why do people act the way they act? Why do you make the decisions that they make? Uh, What's this world all about? Why are we here? Where are we going to go? What are we supposed to do while we are here? Those were the kinds of things that drew me into the Bible studies Um, I also worked at Family Fun Works, which was an arcade. Oh my goodness, so many good memories from that place. (laughs) Yes, yes. If you had good memories as a customer, imagine I worked there. It was like the best job. I always always tell people it was all downhill after Family Fun Works. (laughs) If anybody wants to play NFL Blitz, if anybody wants to play, um, what was the other one? NFL Blitz, Cruising USA, I'm ready. Nice. Tekken, Tekken 2 combos. I know none of those, but I'm sure some What's of our favorite? listeners would appreciate What's your favorite it? video game, Odessa? Um, I was fond of Mortal Kombat. Pretty, I do pretty well in it, Pac-Man. Um, and then moving forward, Nintendo 64 with Mario Kart. But that's it. I wasn't a huge video game person. I'm very. You're much more passionate about it than I am. I'm just very glad I was able to like take over this interview right now. And now I'm interviewing you. You see how that worked? Yeah, it's all good. Yeah, I get it. Well, it's a conversation, right? It's not all going to be one way. (laughs) Yeah, but like I want to take over. So I just took over. Switching back to you. No, it's like, wait a second. I switched the whole thing. That was awesome. Switching back to you. Okay, so wait. I I was on a good riff there. So I I do want to give the whole picture because it's a valuable part of my life. I was in the Bible studies, like doing family fun works, working there, Turlock High School. And then I started going to a non-denominational Christian American church. I need to know what yeah. your parents thought at this point. My dad, pretty simple. He said, hey, church is good, but too much church is not good. <laughs> <laughs> Cl- classic Assyrian response. Steve, this is good, but not too much, you know? It's very, yeah, we had such a dynamic upbringing and it would be fun to have my siblings in on that conversation because they have their opinion on a lot of that but my parents and again it's not a knock it's just they worked a lot they had to um, to raise us so they were both working full-time I had free reign I would go to bible studies and and that's something that's actually and you know Ellie was sort of in the same situation too and a lot of us Assyrian kids were in that our parents worked very hard they were immigrants to the U.S. they were trying to make a house payment they didn't want to get behind or on any of that stuff. So with that freedom, it's it's funny because we'd like go to Bible study and we'd go too much. We'd sneak out. And uh, thankfully, 
many of us we didn't get into like drugs and that kind of stuff which would have totally derailed us at that young age but we were into like going to bible studies and but we had a it was it was not your average bible study what was it like well it was a at bill's house okay. so bill would invite lot he was a single guy you were saying bill was a substitute teacher but he also preached about god how did you even get introduced to bill though cuz you went to from someone that wasn't even going to church and then some like substitute guy, just teacher, just shows up and Bill is like, "Here yeah. is the word of God." So, Elia was walking out of Rayleigh's, and and Bill started talking to him, struck up a conversation, and again, Bill had his spiel. If you were to die tonight, and God were to ask you, "Why should I let you into my heaven?" What would you say to him? That's Boom! A powerful. Question. That's a powerful question. Interesting question. It's like it's about where you're going to go when you die. Yeah. And so imagine you're coming from your Assyrian background of, yeah, we go to church on Easter and we go to church on Christmas. And then you have to answer that question. You're going to be like, I have no idea because I'm cool because I'm a good guy. I don't, you know, I'm a Syrian. <laughs> God's going to let me in. Uh, <laughs> so I have no idea why God's going to let me. In. I hope he'll let me in. And then he would do his he had a whole presentation, gospel presentation. How old were you around this time? 14, 15. And it was a, it was a decent presentation. It was, uh, God loves everyone, wants everyone to go to heaven. There's a problem. We've all sinned. God's holy. Can't, can't allow you to go to heaven. If you got sinned, good news. Jesus died on the cross, was raised from the dead. So now you can be forgiven and you can go to heaven. It's like this watch. If I give you this watch, how much does it cost you? Oh, it's free. That's exactly right. God wants you to go to heaven. You just have to be willing to accept Jesus into your heart and receive the free gift to go to heaven. Bill had this thing down packed and we took classes and we learned it and we'd go and we'd share with other people. So that was, you know, you between the ages of 15, 18, you're very impressionable. And, um, and these that was the sort of message. That's what drew you in. I don't know what drew me in. I think I did appreciate the directness by which he spoke. He he felt confident what what he was saying. But I also think there was a strong sense of community. Mm-hmm. There was a when we would go to Bill's house, you know, he gave us free reign. He had his refrigerator there. We'd go get apple juice and for us Assyrian kids like some of my Assyrian friends their parents took them to church and they had some of this through their church group. I didn't. Mm-hmm. We didn't. Mm-hmm. Bill created that for us, but Bill the way that he created it though was it was it was both community he would sit in one chair and we'd read a bible verse talk about it what do you think that means and then he'd give us a little bit of background information and um, he he taught us some very clear sort of okay so the technical is hermeneutical ideas or her- hermeneutics which is how do you study the bible what what is the method what are the tools for studying the scriptures so he gave us a way to interpret the Bible, and it was accessible. But during that time, I also started going to a church called Monta Vista Chapel. And Monta Vista, one of the amazing things, especially at that time, is the pastors there, they really taught you how to love yourself and love others and know that you are loved by God. So on the one side, it wasn't that Bill didn't do that. Bill did do that to a degree. But but Monta Vista Chapel created more of a now let's let's it was, it was more relational. Hmm. How big was the congregation? I think like thousand people probably. I, I really I don't remember right now. I know they had two services. 
but I also got involved in the junior high ministry there. And there was a guy named Vance Yarbrough who was a mentor to me. So I was 18, 19 years old and going to small group Bible studies where we would lead the junior high students. And the thing that blew my mind, when we go to Bill's Bible studies, we'd open up John chapter one, start reading, interpret this Bible Mm -hmm. verse. We go to these uh, small groups. It was, how do you deal with the sin in your life? How do you deal with betrayal? And have verses guide you through that or? Talk, yes. You look at, look at God's word to, and a lot of people don't appreciate that language, which is, which is fine. But look at the scriptures as a guide to provide some principles for how you ought to be living your life. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it created this sense of I'm getting deep into the scriptures through this Bible studies. I'm learning how to read the Bible. But then I was going to Montevist Chapel, which was helping me to deal with my shadow self. And what was that? Well, we all have a shadow self, right? We all have an area of about ourselves, a dark passenger that we have to learn to deal with. We have to learn to uh, be aware of. And it's, it's our blind spots. It's those areas we're not proud of. It's those areas we want to improve. And I'm just like anyone else. You know, I've got those areas that I'm, I wish I could do better in. But going to the church actually created a place where you would talk about these things. Openly. That's a, tr- that's a radically different thing than growing up in an Assyrian household, you know, where we, we just don't, it's not that it's a bad thing that we don't talk about these things in our Assyrian families. It's just how our culture was then. And, and there might be value in saying, we're not going to talk about that here, but we do want you to talk about it. Not to critique my parents' parenting skills, right? They're doing the best that they could. Well, I think that that was just a very normal thing for an Assyrian household is those sorts of issues aren't stuff that you sit down and and discuss with your family. Hey, I'm going through this. Hey, I'm feeling this way type of thing. Yeah, even now, I mean, if you try to pry a little too much, it doesn't register. Mm -hmm. It's like, uh, what do you think you're talking (laughs) Like, what? (laughs) But it's awesome because you have to appreciate where they're coming from, the world they grew up yeah. in. So I was in Monte Vista and I was getting that and it was it was really making a huge impact on me. At the same time, I was in a fraternity, so I was partying to a degree. And uh, this has just been a part of who I am. I In a fraternity, in Bible study, um, studying computer information systems, had a lot of different relationships. Some worked out, some completely fell apart and then all of that was uh, led me to go and start helping at the Assyrian Evangelical Church in Turlock. What happened was um, a friend of someone I was seeing said you need to go help with uh, Syrian churches Mm because they need leaders and went to this Bible study there's a lady named Romina Yegane and uh, she was leading it at the time and there was many others but I took the concepts I picked up at Monte Vista Chapel building relationships small groups mentors people who invested in you not just talking about who's right and who's wrong in the Bible but actually talking about life lessons and we we basically took that model and we put it on the Assyrian Evangelical Church in Turlock on that youth group mm-hmm. And the youth group went from like five kids to 25 regularly, and it it grew. And that was because of you and your friend? It was because of, um, 
Yes. Yeah, it was. It was because of what we took. It was because of the ideas we took from Monte Vista Chapel and leading that group. Because right. Romina and Romina, I, or, you know, we're still friends, longtime friends. Well, when I showed up, she's like, Steve, do whatever you want to do, which was amazing. I was 21. Mm-hmm. No, I was 20. I was like 20 years old. And she's like, go ahead, you know. And so you're 20, you got all this energy. And we had accountability groups for our friends where we talk about the issues we were wrestling with. And we do the, the small groups at the Syrian Evangelical Church. And what happened was kids came, lots of the high school students, Assyrians from all the different churches. And what do you think was it about that model that really drew them in? Well, we made it a specific to invest in them. We talked about real things. I mean, this was like when MySpace was coming out. So we were like, should you have a MySpace account or not? Let's talk about this. Who's going to be on your top eight? Who's going to no, be? Just kidding. The, the issues that are caused because of your top eight. Yeah, yeah. We took the kids on trips. We went to Hume Lake, uh, so a Christian camp. And this was all new. It was awesome. It was, it was wild. It was fun. We had eight different small group leaders. We'd go to the youth group. to be about two minutes of announcements. We'd sing some songs. We'd do a 10 to 12 to minute message and then you break up in a small group the same group and you talk about it and people loved it the kids loved it the leaders loved leading and so what happened was that actually is how did I end up in seminary so Monte Vista Chapel did a really good job of building this relational understanding of the scriptures and of your spirituality and I found that I was able to connect with lots of different people and that this youth group grew so I continued while I was doing my computer information systems degree, I continued to get training through Monte Vista Chapel. Um, and I went to training for just leading the youth group. Okay. And that was what I was going to do. There was no plan to go into any kind of vocational ministry, but I actually got my undergraduate computer information systems degree and I got my first job. I was a functional analyst working at a water software company. It was a cool job. I got to go to Paris for two months. No like, kidding. Straight out of college. Oh, wow. That's it was, amazing. It was fun, actually. And I think the only reason why I got the job over this other guy is because I took two years of French in high school. So it's crazy Maybe. how these things <laughs> work out in your favor sometimes. Yeah. So I was full on board with being into technology. And then what ended up happening is I went to chicago at this large small group church summit that monte vista chapel sent me to Hmm. and while i was there there were certain ministries that they were doing that really touched me and that really touched me and then i i was in at this conference and i thought why don't i do this why don't i just become a minister or a pastor because up until that point when you were graduating what were your thoughts like what were you envisioning for yourself for your future with regards to a career? Tech, computers. Just tech, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that was the plan, was to use my computer information systems degree. And I did, and it was awesome. And it actually made a big difference for what we did for the church stuff. But going to Monte Vista Chapel, going to these small group summits, I had another mentor in my life, this guy named Roy Chapin. And Roy was the first person who ever taught me how to really listen so that's hard that doesn't come easy to many people it's just really sitting down and listening to somebody Mm -hmm. he really instilled in us had us read a book called soul talk but when you would go and talk to roy you could tell him whatever's going on in your life whatever's bugging you guy would just listen 
And then when he would respond, it was like he knew the right word to say to connect exactly with you. I remember I shared with him something once. I was really hurt about it. And he said, you sound disappointed. And that word disappointed, it was like all of a sudden I felt better after he said it because he connected with my pain. So I had guys like him in my life and I was doing wonderful with the pastoring stuff at the as a youth pastor and technology stuff was going well. Also was a huge fan of this guy named Chip Ingram. Um, listened to all of his sermons. He is a guy that did a good job of combining personal with life application stuff. And that's when I decided I was going to, if I was going to do it, I needed to get education because everything I had ever talked about, everything I'd ever shared with anyone else was simply taking something I learned from the pastor at Monte Vista or from Bill or Chip or Roy or whoever, and then translating it into like Steve Nettness's words and then delivering it. So it wasn't really authentic. Not that it was, I was hiding or I was, you know, we all steal from each other. That's the reality. Everybody steals from everybody. But back then I needed to get training. I wanted to be able to handle the scriptures in a way where I felt like I was responsible with them. And everyone I asked was like Dallas Theological Seminary. That's the place to go. And it's one of the best, I would say, Protestant evangelical seminaries there is. So that was it. Your mind was set. You wanted to go to the very best to be equipped with all the tools that you would need. If you were going to do this, you were going to do it 100%. Mm-hmm. So you got accepted. Which was huge because... I applied to another school and then I applied to Dallas Seminary. And my mentor, Roy, he did not get accepted when he was younger. Wow. And so when Dallas Seminary accepted me, I was thrilled. I couldn't, I was so thrilled. I couldn't believe it. And I got accepted. And then, yeah, three months, four months later, I packed up everything into my Toyota Camry and drove. It's funny, I had a 32 inch or like a 40 inch TV, the fat TVs. Who would put that in their camera? You yeah. know, take I took it Super all. Bulky. I drove it all the way to <laughs> Dallas, and we had a going away party from the youth group students, and it was it was awesome. So you moved to Dallas from Turlock. Mm-hmm. You drove there, and then how long did you end up staying in Dallas for? I got my master's degree. It took me three years. It was a four year degree, but I wanted to finish school as quickly as possible. So, so you I did, did it accelerated. I did it as accelerated. <laughs> My first semester there, they're like, there's no way you're going to get out of here in three years. I got out of there in three years and then came back to California after three years, but did not want to be in California. And I moved back to Texas, spent four more years there. So in total, I lived there about seven years. Wow. What did seminary school teach you? Seminary school completely blew my mind. Basically, I was handed a lot of things. I was given a lot of things. And then seminary broke those things down and it blew them up and really challenged me. There are times in our life where we see something in front of us and when we get close enough to it, we can either keep going towards it or we can just stay far back and like view it from at an arm's length. And when it came to my beliefs, I always wanted to get those things challenged. Growing up in Bill's Bible study was where this is what you believe and this is what the truth is. What was wonderful about Dallas Seminary is you walk in and now you're having to learn Greek. You're having to learn Hebrew. And and you're having to read six different interpretations on one passage to hear what people in different time periods viewed and what they thought. So now your Bible study stories you've been hearing 
you're like, wait a second, I didn't know the context. Mm. I didn't know the background. That transforms what the text says. Mm. So there was a lot going on. One, I was out of Turlock. Turlock, small town. I'm in Dallas. I don't know anyone. And I'm in seminary. So one of my favorite professors, a guy named Dr. Glenn Kreider, wonderful man, and me coming from my Turlock, Bill Larson, Bible study, Monte Vista Chapel background, uh, Glenn's teaching theology 101, and he's talking about whether or not you need other people to interpret the Bible. And I was taught, it's like, no, it's just you and the Bible. Mm -hmm. If you got your Bible, then you can read your Bible. And God will show you what to think. I'm in Glenn Kreiser's class and he asked this question to the whole class. And I'm like, the Holy Spirit will lead you. <laughs> and he says in front of the whole class, he says, you need to give me your Bible. You, you should not have a Bible to be reading a Bible. What's that supposed to mean? Because he could see that the way I was approaching the Bible would have led me to some ideas that weren't going to be helpful. And I'm saying that as politically correct as I possibly can, even though it's fun to be on the Assyrian podcast. But that was a, that, those were the kinds of experiences I was having that were changing me. A lot of people might remember me pre-seminary, and then there's post-seminary. And so if you want to know what happened to me in seminary, it was having core beliefs challenged. And not just saying, this is me against your belief but being willing to be wrong and also always reading the other person's opinion and making sure that you can become like gang warfare with your idea versus somebody else's idea. And I didn't want to do that. Hmm. I think it was my Assyrian hospitality background, just how warm we are with one another. It just didn't sit right to consistently battle other people of who's going to heaven and who's going to hell and what's right and what's wrong. It wasn't the the major change that happened to me in seminary that that moved everything for me is being in the Assyrian world, especially the church world. You got Protestants, Assyrian Church of these Chaldeans, whatnot. Often there's these arguments about little things. Yeah. But when you if you tell them, oh, this is a little thing. No, it's not a little thing. It's like a huge thing. But when I was in seminary, all of a sudden I was like, wait a second. If you believe X thing about the Eucharist, and I believe Y, and you believe Z, another person believes Z, they still got to wake up, put on their pants, do their regular life. What difference is it going to make on how they treat another person? And then I would get responded with like all of these Yes, but this is the truth and that isn't the truth. And if you don't do the truth, then you're not doing the truth. And that is a core. But then I was like, but no, my Baptist friend, he's a good guy. And my Assyrian church, he's a good guy too. Are we really going to now say like, this person's got it completely wrong and this person's got it completely right? And I had uh, people in my life, Raman Benjamin's actually a Assyrian church of the East person who's a deacon. And him and I would have really good conversations because he was in Dallas as well as at that time right yeah after seminary he came into my life for you so there was a lot of things happening there it seems like so for one that was your first time that you were moving out of Turlock mm-hmm. going to a completely different place you're not talking about another place California you're talking about Texas and then Dallas at that 
a much bigger city. And I specifically chose Dallas because I did not want to come home when things went bad. Mm, okay. So you're far was, enough where it's like There was a Fuller like Seminary just... was in Los Angeles. There was Western Seminary. In fact, a church said they would pay my tuition, a lot of it, if I would go to Western. And I was like, no, because if I'm going to grow then it needs to be a holistic growth. And that's what it seemed like. So it was, you were dealing with that in terms of transition. You were dealing with the shakeup from your core beliefs. Mm-hmm. And you were really trying to make sense of this new place and this new life and this new path that you were on. What was that like to be able to juggle all of that at the same time? Like, like how did Steve grow outside of faith? Met brand new friends who became family, learned that you can gain new family wherever you are, fell in love with the city of Dallas. West Village Starbucks was my place. (laughs) I was friends with doctors, lawyers, dentists, philosophers, rich, poor. It was the, uh, that West Village Starbucks is the epicenter of just wonderful conversation. So it was awesome because everything I had learned growing up and those arguments that I had been given, they didn't work. I'd be talking to people who were just geniuses, happened to congregate at that West Village Starbucks, where a lot of the Southern Methodist University students would also go. And as silly as it might sound, I mean, it it did it. I went out of my way to make friends with people who were different than me. And then I wanted to understand how they viewed the world. How important is that? It was, well, I'm I'm wired that way. And I'm thankful for that. But you're right, I, I think... That's one of the primary messages of the scriptures that a lot of people just seem to gloss over is can we accept the other? Mm-hmm. Whatever the other is, are we willing to build a relationship? So for me personally, I always wanted to you know, dive into that as much as possible. And a lot of people wonder, some, some of my old friends from those groups, they didn't understand my new perspectives or ideas or whatever, and just kind of said, this guy must have gone off the deep end, whatever. And a lot of it was some of the, not all, not all, not all the things that I was given earlier were bad or wrong or not helpful. They were actually deeply helpful and amazing and good, like learning from Bill about God's grace and forgiveness and mercy. Those are concepts you're gonna keep forever. But then there was other things within the framework that didn't work. And so living in Dallas, being around this mixture of lots of different thoughts, and then reading the scriptures themselves, like if people would stop for a moment and like this is like the preachy side of me coming out, actually. That's okay. But if people would dive into the Apostle Paul, for example, one of the first Christians, I've heard it said that his writings and he's just as smart as Socrates or Plato, yet we don't view him that way. We view him as a religious person or whatever. And when I started to get into his writings and understand the context that he was dealing with, the world that he was dealing with, and how he was trying to speak to those people within that world, this had nothing to do with where you were going to go when you died. It had nothing to do, Not I shouldn't say nothing is a little too strong, but they were about how do you live the best life now? How do you make the most of this life that God has given you, that the universe has given you? How do you, how do you view the world so that it, you, you have an expansive perspective and you're, you're transcending those things that have held you back? You know? So I got lucky. 
I'm at Dallas Seminary. I'm reading, I'm reading N.T. Wright. I'm reading the new fresh perspective on Paul. I'm reading Walter Brueggemann. I'm reading just amazing theologians from all walks. I'm reading Catholic, Protestant, atheist. I took philosophy of ethics courses. So I'm, in, I'm now diving into Nietzsche and Kant and different ones. And for me, this is, this is a whole new arena. It's not sitting, not that this was a bad thing, but not sitting at Bill's house reading a verse, talking about that verse. Now I'm looking at the Dead Sea Scrolls. I'm saying, oh, wait, this is what was happening in the first century. I didn't know that this was happening. Oh, there's this one community. There was 6,000 Pharisees in the first century, and they really viewed themselves as the rule keepers because they were preserving their ethnic identity. And Jesus is within that world, and now he's carrying himself this way. And resurrection can be viewed in this way and that way. And there's, there's, so you're really expanding your Oh, my gosh. So it was directions. so much fun. <laughs> it was so much fun. How, if at all, did your Assyrian identity play in, in all of that? It deeply had a major role. Yeah, how so? That's how I stood out. And I didn't know how Assyrian I was until I got to Dallas. Because <laughs> when you grow up in Turlock, yeah, there's lots like, of Assyrians. <laughs> right. But when you grow go to Dallas and you're like, you're an Assyrian, they're like, I always use this, you know, you mean, you mean the Syrian? Assyrians in the Bible? <laughs> they would actually say Syrian. You'd be like, no, Assyrian. They'd be like, yeah, the Assyrians in the Bible. And some people... I had one professor say, they, they, you don't exist anymore. Are you kidding me? So, no, I, here's, here's actually the biggest impact my Assyrian identity had on me in Dallas. All of my friends, we'd, I'd invite them over for dinner, food. We'd go watch Saints games and have a drink. It was about personal relationships. Mm. So I was, I was more hospitable. And some folks, that, that surprises them. Mm. I mean, at least then. So you were the one that was often gathering people together. Just to have food and um, learned how to make like katlete yeah. and did macaron like a Syrian style. Nice. And a few other stuff. But that was the, that was the other thing. It made learning Hebrew a lot easier. Yeah. Just speaking Assyrian, so many words. Yeah. So at one point you were saying later on uh, after your, was it after theology school that Raman ended up going to Dallas and living there? Or moving there? It's an interesting story. I met Raman on an airplane in San Jose. I guess he knew my sister. And she told him, oh, I've got a brother living in Dallas. And then we were on the same flight back to Dallas. And Raman was a consultant. And so he was flying around. And then there, I lived with him, actually, for a bit. And then we we lived together. It, there was a lot of movement. So I moved back to California, and then I moved there. And what was wonderful is... I took all my theological background, knowledge, understanding from this Protestant seminary. And then I would listen to Raman about his background from the Syrian Church of the East. And he's a deacon of the he's Church a of the East. So he's, he's going to... I would have loved to be a fly on the wall in your conversations together. Because you're both very understanding people as well and listen, do a good job listening. So I'm sure that you're able to at least try to understand where the other person was coming from, but also being able to have thoughtful debate. Is that true? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And there's another guy named Ramil who lives in Dallas, who's just a brilliant guy. And he's actually starting up something for the Assyrian community there. He's He's been doing a lot of work in that community. But he so was, I'm, I'm actually thinking that Texas and Dallas, Houston is actually going to be the next hotspot for Assyrians. It already is. But like even Dallas, more so. Yeah, and yeah. It, it will be more. Yep. It's a good place. You, I got that over there. It says you can take me out of Texas, but you can't take Texas out of me. <laughs> 
So someone who fell in love with Texas, how did you then end up making your way back to California? I ended up moving back to California because um, California State University Stanislaus was looking for a professor for a management information systems class. It was just one course. Oh, actually, wait, I jumped the gun a little bit. After seminary, I moved back to Turlock. When you were graduating? I was going to go be a pastor. Okay. At an Assyrian church or just any church that would Any church. Okay. And how did that work out? I found that I didn't fit in very well anymore. Say more. It was interesting. I'd gone into seminary with one perspective. I'd come out of seminary with another. And so I wasn't giving the the company line within the church world. In some ways, that meant I wasn't damning people to hell. (laughs) I mean, I say that loosely. Like, that's not a knock. It's just I found that some of the churches I was connected with it had appeared that I, you know, my my perspective had become more nuanced and that didn't work. Plus, I was a single guy. And at the time, for one reason or another, I think it was my age, maybe a lot younger, churches did not want to hire a single guy to be their pastor. Interesting. I, you know, I might be reading into that. I might be creating that myself, but I couldn't get a full time pastoral, legitimate pastoral position. The other thing that had happened was while I was in seminary, I found that I no longer fit as well within my original upbringing church. And I wanted to be a part of a historic tradition and I didn't fit within the Assyrian church very well, which is a historic church. And there was a number of reasons for that, but I also didn't want, couldn't see myself within the evangelical or non-denominational world as much either. So I thought Presbyterians would be a good, happy medium. So forgive me for my ignorance, but on Thinking of churches outside of apostolic churches is where so many of the denominations become fuzzy to me. What's Mm -hmm. the difference between evangelical and Presbyterian and Protestant? Yeah, so when you think about when you think about Christendom, there's, of course, lots of different branches. But it's funny, I'm about to go into church history, which is a blast on the Assyrian podcast. Yeah, (laughs) I would love to do a full episode specifically on this. I mean, when you think about it on a broad perspective, Jesus got a message. He shares that message. You got people he shares it with. They go and they start churches, right? So you got the Western church, you got the Eastern church. Then in the Western church and the Eastern church, you start getting splits. And I don't care what anybody says, and you may agree or disagree with me, but there's splits. Humans don't get along. I don't care who you are. If you're atheist, you're not going to get along with another atheist. If you're Christian, you're not going to get along with another Christian. So all Those little nuances end up making for a whole new denomination. Especially when people are hooked into what they think and they're hooked into belief as the main motivator and driver behind that. So what ended up happening is uh, several different branches and you got the Eastern Church or you got the Church of the East, you got the Western Roman Catholic Church. And then around 1500, there's a massive shift that happens uh, in the Western Church. Martin Luther, Reformation, all that stuff. So within the Reformation, these different leaders, they start... So for example, the word Presbyterian, do you know what it means? Presbyter? But I don't know. When, what does the word Presbyter I mean? I don't know. Perfect. That's great. I love it. That's One of my favorite things to do is, is be in a Presbyterian church and say, who knows what the word Presbyterian <laughs> means? And people are like... <laughs> <laughs> I've been a Presbyterian my whole life. You know, what does it mean? So the word presbyter means elder. It's the Greek word for elder. And so part of why 
the Presbyterian Church was started is because it had a different form of government. So bishop, Episcopal, means bishop. And so Episcopalians have a bishop. Presbyterians are elder, community-run churches. Hmm. So you mean the elders of those communities are the ones that are the pastor or... Actually, uh, the technical, yes, a, the, a ruling elder is... There's ruling elders and teaching elders, but the short and the long of it is that authority does not terminate on one person. So, oh, for okay. example, if you're part of a Presbyterian church, there's what you call a session, and the session is made up of elders. So if there's a big decision to be made, that group talks it over. I see. The elders Inside are the, the boss. But Okay, so it's run. it's not by one particular person. It's a few people that are running the show. Yeah, and there's rules, and there's a book of order. And uh, when you think about the Reformation, it's the these new churches that were developed, they had very specific ways of ordering themselves. They were they were wanting to reform and they wanted to change how things were before then. Uh, not that they were all bad, but there were certain things they wanted to make better. Hmm. So anyway, that's, and so then how does that differ from how does the evangelical model work and then Protestant? So. Protestant is the big branch, ah, okay. and then Episcopalian, Methodist, Lutheran. I see. Fall all under that umbrella? Yeah. I see. So you got Roman Catholic, Protestant. Okay. It's, it's terrible. I mean, the, the amount of different words. Do you ever eat? We've got a lot of Christian ever, denominations. Do you ever eat Wendy's? <laughs> no. You never eat Wendy's? No. Okay, well, Wendy's, they're, they have potato wedges. Okay. Do you know what potato wedges yes, are? Yes. Okay. So, like, what's the difference between potato wedges and French fries? Their shape. <laughs> but they're pretty much the same thing, right? Oh, my gosh, I know. But sometimes you crave one over the other. Sometimes you want those yeah, yeah. Those wedges. It's probably the worst illustration. But... Or, like, curly fries at Jack in the Box are different than just regular fries. Come mm-hmm. on, Steve. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, don't get me wrong. Like, I respect and value all the different traditions, and I... I think it's important to understand where they're coming from and the distinct totally uh, the distinct expression they bring to the world. But if you're going to pin them up against each other and start a battle about who's right and who's wrong, that's not interesting for me. Done because those kind of little things don't matter to you. You're thinking big picture stuff. They're very important things, and I don't want to call them little. They're very important because they reveal how you think. They mm-hmm. reveal, but they're also you like a, a a language I've heard that's helpful is. You want to hold it tightly but loosely. Hmm. My perspective is that God wants us to live our best life. God wants us to do well in the world. God did not create us as robots or machines to... or The universe did not put us forward uh, to battle against each other. And instead, like, what helps you be a healthy human? That's the most important thing. The word sin is not a bad word. The word sin is a very good word, and it's a very important word. But I think in other words, other words that help, if you want to assess whether something's right or wrong, or whether what is is it healthy, is it unhealthy? Mm-hmm. I don't know how much God is interested in, like, some people. I probably shouldn't say this without giving more context to it, but morals are not the main story of the Bible. What is? 
God created a good world. The good world went bad. God is renewing it. He's redeeming us. There's areas of our life that are beautiful. And there's areas of our life that are broken. And then there's uh, redemption and renewal happening. That's why we have things like the Assyrian podcast. So we could talk about our brokenness. We could also talk about... Now, that isn't a Christian idea. Yeah. It, it's not like if you went to a another religion and you were like... Um, do you believe in redemption? They'd be like, no, I don't believe in redemption. Hmm. You know, I'm against redemption. Hmm. So for me, it's about how do you become a healthy human? Hmm. And how do you help others? How do you help yourself? How do you make the most of this life that God has given you? The universe has given you whatever language you want to use. What's healthy? That's it. Move beyond my position versus your position. Like You can have your position, but does your position help you to live a better life? If it doesn't, switch it. And some people will say, no, but you're being, you're compromising. You got to just hold on. And yeah, to a degree. But then at some point, you also have to own that you're no longer, you, you, you missed the big picture here. So that's one of the core principles for me is, and honestly, I've, I've had enough brokenness and enough, enough failures in my own life and enough areas of I need to improve and want to grow in, enough times where I've tried to solve my own whatever it is and realized I'm not about to try to crush someone else with my theological ideas. Although if you talk to my family, they'd be like, what? He does that all the time. <laughs> Well, it's your family, right? <laughs> I have to be careful about that. Yeah. So, <laughs> so that that didn't end up working for you in Turlock. You ended up going back to Dallas, and then you ended up coming back to California, and this is where you are now. Yeah. So what ended up happening was um, I was a youth pastor at Presbyterian Church in Duncanville, Texas, for four years. It was one of the best experiences of my life. Had a had a woman there who was a lead pastor who really encouraged me, invested in me, amazing woman. And was able to take a lot of things I learned from Dallas Seminary and try to apply them in a church setting, which was fun. I also worked at PepsiCo, so I was doing technology there. Uh, executive. Did you see the commercial on the Super Bowl? I did not watch the Super Bowl because the Saints were cheated. And I would not support, I will not support that. You're loyal so. to your team, all right. I came in that's on the fair. last two minutes just because I wanted to watch the Rams lose. But that's it. Would you say you're bitter? No, I, I will not support. Okay. I'm not a bit, oh, maybe a little bitter, actually. <laughs> anyway. That was, a penal- that was a penalty. They could have called it. You should not have to win a game twice. They won it once. You finish the game right there. All right. For the listeners that may not know, Steve is a hardcore New Orleans Who Saints dat? fan. Who that? Yeah. So sorry about that. This is sorry fun being on the Assyrian <laughs> podcast. Like, I'm just letting loose. So yeah, I let loose. Not, this is so. what it's about. Let it loose. All right, so continue. Sorry, I interrupted you. PepsiCo. Yeah, I was at PepsiCo and uh, did executive desktop support there, which was a wonderful job. It was great to be able to see that whole corporate world. And then I was also a youth pastor. So I had one foot in, foot in technology, one foot in the church, which was fun. And then I got a job at Good Shepherd Episcopal School, which is an independent school in Dallas, and uh, did database stuff there and realized that what would work for me is full-time technology and part-time pastoral work. I really enjoyed that. Mm. I loved the students I worked with at the church. We had a blast, talked about all kinds of stuff, lots of paradigm shifts those four years and after seminary. And 
then I had plateaued. I was database admin. I was a youth pastor. I wasn't going to go beyond that. And opportunity opened up at California State University to be a professor, teach management information systems, just one class. And I just thought, whoa, this will look really good on my resume. I shouldn't balk at this. And I thought, hmm, should I go get ordained in the Presbyterian tradition to actually lead my own church? Should I make that jump from youth to leading? And I decided I would try it. Nice. Yeah. So again, I moved, made a big life change, drastic change, because I had wonderful community in Dallas. Do you consult with a lot of people before like changes like that? Or do you just, do you pray about it? Like, how do you leap from something to something that big? I hired a life coach, mm. bradleygrinnon.com. Brad's a guy I met at a conference, wonderful man, just in-depth, smart, uh, passionate about life, knows how to help you succeed, whatever you're working on, whatever you're working toward, whether it's a personal thing you're trying to improve on, whether you just want to get more salary, whatever it is. He was starting out as a coach. This was in 2014. And before I moved back, I hired him. and I, I paid him up front for six months. I said, hey, Brad, um, I don't need you until I leave, but once I get there, I'm going to need you, which was wonderful because I show up back to Turlock, my hometown, realized my whole plan was not very good. Hmm. Being a professor wasn't as big of a deal as I thought. Being involved in the church in Turlock is a good church, but I just moved from Dallas to Turlock. Nothing against Turlock. It was just a big shift. I left Turlock, wonderful place, but that age, that time, so... Ended up getting a job in Oakland, independent school in Oakland. Became director of technology at a very prestigious place and continued the path toward ordination and um, wrote a book and published that book around that time. We're going to go into that. <laughs> okay. So anyway, now I'm working at a, a school district in the Bay Area as the Google Solutions architect. It's a new job, fun, learning a lot, doing a lot. Nice. So you still get to be able to use two aspects of your life that you're very passionate about, technology as well as pastoring. I, I um, over the last four years, occasionally is I will... pastoring the word, right word? Yeah. To pastor sure. is pastoring? Sure. <laughs> sure. But I will say, like, me Ministering? as a... This is my struggle in the Assyrian community. Yes. Is when you say Qasha, pastor, it's got all these connotations with it. Not only in the Assyrian church, but like, also... what are those connotations? He's the holy guy. Well, I got a beer in my hand. Now what? Am I a pastor or am I not a pastor? Right. So it's this intense pressure to be... For people to think you're supposed to be a certain way. It's And if you're just difficult. being a regular human being, then... Like like if you have sin struggles. Yeah. If you have areas you've blown it in. Yeah. And then you want to be a pastor. Doesn't work so You well. have a couple options. Either you're very transparent about that, but then they think you're a bleeding heart. Or you act like you don't sin. So I just act like I don't sin. Mm, okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Then I don't have to worry about, you know, so. No, okay. But. Um, we're going to talk about the book. But before we talk about the book, I feel like this is a good opportunity for me to just ask you questions with regards to faith and when it comes to people our age. And I get the sense that less and less people are going to church. Is that true? I think that's true. Across the board, more or less. I think so. I mean, I have to look at the numbers. I don't trust a lot of the numbers, but anyway, yeah. I don't follow the numbers, but probably, yeah. And why do you think that is? There's lots of different reasons, but at the end of the day, I would say if a church is effective, when I say effective, 
I mean helping people to live their best life by introducing them to concepts and, and into a relationship that will help them improve their life. We all want to be known and we all want to be loved. And if a church can help someone feel known and loved in a healthy way, that doesn't mean the pastor has to have everybody's phone number and be best friends with everyone. That doesn't help you feel loved. I mean, how do we help people connect with grace, with mercy, with forgiveness? Now, I would use the word Jesus there, right? How do you help people connect with Jesus? But people have such a misunderstanding of who Jesus is that a lot of people, they don't, that, that's a big turnoff for them. Hmm. But if you understand Jesus in the world that he lived in and you study Christ from Jesus the Christ, if you if you pull back, and I hope that doesn't sound arrogant, but I am passionate about how do we get to know the scriptures in their own context. I, one of the phrases I like to use is, if you want to understand the word of God, then you have to understand the world of the word. Wow, that's super meta. <laughs> if you understand the world of the word, then the words start to have incredible meaning. These are people's lives are on the line. These are people making major decisions about how they view themselves, how they view their enemies, how they're going to respond to that person that just betrayed them, where they're going to find meaning and hope in their life. The worst question, and I get it all the time, I can't stand this question, it's, are you religious? Why can't you stand that question? And the other side of it is, I could say like, no, I'm spiritual. You know, the whole thing is a joke. I get what they're saying. What They should, they should just translate it though. Do you go to church on Sundays? Do you, mm-hmm. do you quote unquote pray? And I appreciate where they're coming from. So I don't mean that in a, you know, mm-hmm. this is just, I, I got to make peace with this. Mm-hmm. But to me, when someone asks me, are you religious? I'm like, do I participate and do I gather with other people where we follow certain signs, symbols, shapes, stand up, sit down, say certain words, have certain ideas that we all agree to? Yes. But when I go to eat sushi with some of my friends, they follow a specific pattern and order. And if you ever go to tailgate before a football game, there's a certain pattern and order and songs that you sing and things that you do in the way that you conduct yourself. And then you go and you go to a game and you stand up and you sit down. Everyone, everyone is religious. Everyone is religious. Everyone, atheists, non-Christians, whoever you are, you're religious. It's a matter of what signs, shapes, symbols do you order your life around. So I don't even know how I got onto that. I don't know, but I think that's going to be the hook. (laughs) Hey, that's cool. (laughs) Right? This is fun. I've never been on the Assyrian podcast before. Like, I don't know who's running this thing, but I'm shocked they even asked me. Finally, like, I know it's been out now for a year. And like, now someone contacted me like, hey, maybe we should ask this guy, Steve. Like, it just shows you within the Assyrian community where I'm at, you know, where my, where my thing is. No, I'm just teasing. So Steve, at what point did you, you, you published a book, Potential the Assyrian Quest for Identity. What does it mean to be an Assyrian from a Christian perspective? What led you to want to create a book? I saw a problem and I wanted to try to create a conversation around that problem. 
So the problem I saw is within our Syrian culture, we want to preserve our ethnicity, but we also want to make it make our best life. We want to flourish. And sometimes those worlds don't go together very well. Why not? Do I marry an Assyrian? Do I live close to the Assyrian community? Do I speak the Assyrian language? If I run a podcast, should I speak the Assyrian language? And oftentimes the church answers some of these questions. And by church, I just say that broadly. I'm not trying to single out any one church over another. But one of the things that blew my mind back in seminary is I'm sitting there reading Paul. And he's dealing with issues of should we eat meat? Should we not eat meat? He's dealing with Hebraic Jews and Greek Jews. And these people are clashing. And their clashes actually have to do with their cultural customs and which cultural customs they would preserve or not preserve. So I'll give you my cliff notes to my book, but I encourage you to read it. The, it's a retelling of the biblical story. And the very basic of it is God created a good world, good world went bad. God's in the process of renewing and redeeming that world. God speaks to a man named Abraham who has kids who have other kids. Nation of Israel is born. This nation is going, God is somehow going to redeem the world through this nation because there's this thing called this curse and this brokenness and uh, there's this shalom that we originally had and that's going to come back but in a trans, like in a, in a healthier part two version. I'm, this is bad cliff notes. Keep going. So these Jews are given this nation of Israel they wash their hands a certain way. They speak a certain language. They carry themselves in a certain way. But what happens when you're living in the Middle East and there's all these other countries around you? The Romans have their way. The Greeks have their way. The Assyrians have their way. And now all of a sudden, you've got to figure out a way when you're getting beat and you have no nation, you've got to figure out a way to preserve your culture. Because why? God made a promise to Abraham that he'd redeem the world through one of Abraham's descendants. You're a part of that. If you don't if you don't participate in these cultural laws like Sabbath, cleansing, circumcision, whatever it is, it, these cultural laws created a home when there was no homeland. That sounds familiar, right? Yeah, sounds like us. <laughs> so when I'm studying scriptures in seminary and I'm reading this stuff from that lens, from a different lens, from its original context and what they're actually arguing about, all of a sudden I'm like, oh my goodness. My mom yelled at, at me about this the other day. <laughs> <laughs> this is what Raman was like saying is so important. And that was when I started to say, oh, this is not a bad, this, this is legit. Like there's, and. What is legit? This conversation and how we preserve our ethnicity. Even Jesus had to deal with it. Hmm. He worked on the Sabbath. That was like because up until that point, what what were your thoughts around it? All of that. The Bible just tells you who's going to go to heaven, who's going to go to hell. Mm -hmm. If you follow Jesus, you're going to make it. If you don't, you're not. Not really. I mean, yes, I knew there was more to the story than that, but that was the dominant underpinning. Mm -hmm. And then starting to read it from its in its historical context, I started to see there's all these other conversations happening, and that changed the words. The world of the word changed the meaning of the text. And I don't have the definitive answer. 
But on this, on the flip side, did that change anything for you in terms of your Assyrian identity and helping to understand why we do the things that mm-hmm. we do? It made me, it made me not be against it as much, mm. as much. <laughs> <laughs> it also challenged me to, to really understand both sides. It made me un- have to understand. Yes, we should preserve our ethnicity because I I asked seventy. Four-year-old man who'd been studying languages his whole life and knows seven different languages and spent ten years translating the Bible into another language. Name's Doctor George Hutter. Give a shout out to him. A wonderful man. And I said, George, what happens if we lose our language? He's not a Syrian. What happens if we lose our language? What's the big deal? It goes away. So what? What difference does it make? I wanted to get an answer from someone like him. He said. Every time a language dies, it's like one instrument out of an orchestra being taken out. I'm paraphrasing him, so I may have got that wrong. But he talked to me about how languages are an expression. They're one expression. And so we ought to preserve them because they create a unique expression of this beautiful thing called humanity that it's been created. So what I wanted to do within the Assyrian community and culture was create that conversation. How do we have healthier conversations about the role of our ethnicity within our churches? How do we help our churches to focus in on how to help people live better lives, not just have right beliefs? How do we help people to be empowered to make healthy choices? And so I just decided to write a book, and that would be my gift to the Assyrian community. What was the feedback that you received from it? I received a lot of positive feedback, good feedback. It was a little bittersweet. I didn't get the impact I thought it would have. Part of it is I'm got to improve on my writing. <laughs> I don't mean to put myself down. It's a, it's good, but I you know it was my first book. I spent five years researching learned about way more things than I ever planned to. I I did it all while working full-time and part-time jobs. I got good feedback. It's just, I think I went over people's heads in some way, and then some people just weren't interested. And then also, my Protestant background didn't do me any favors. How so? What do you mean by that? Well, if you're a Syrian Church of the East, why are you going to read this Christian book oh, by this right. Protestant? Right. Which is not positive, not good. And that's Chaldean Catholic. And then even within the Protestant tradition, there are certain Protestants that are, well, he's Presbyterian, or he's this, or he's that. And But that's what's interesting about our culture. We're so tribal. The outpouring of support from people who didn't know me, who were just happy and thankful that an Assyrian did something. Mm -hmm. And that is something we don't appreciate as much as we should. Mm -hmm. Go publish a book in another culture where there's millions of you. You're not going to get the support. I don't mean that in a... that sounded in a like it's just our Assyrian community if someone else does something we're just right there to support them mostly so that was that was pretty awesome of the Assyrian community to come in and do that I mean I had so much fun doing the research on who we are as Assyrians our history our background first section of the book I do a lot of that second section is the retelling of the biblical story with an emphasis on ethnicity I have um think like over a hundred end notes in that book it was just reading books upon books 
the funny story is in 2009, after I graduated seminary, I was going to move back to Dallas to start up there again. And I told you my friend Elia, so I went to Reno where Elia lives. It's like, hey man, I want to write this book. I just need about three weeks to write this book. And then I didn't write it. All right, I started working on it. And five years later, I published that book. Wow. So it took you five years to do. But it was supposed to only be three weeks. He was going to get me like a cabin. I can just get this book knocked out in three weeks. Right. And then five just years later. Yes. I was like, oh, I'm going to be somewhere in a cabin like writing a book. And then I realized I was doing a lot more reading. And then writing is not easy. I don't know how. If I, Yeah. So it was a lot of work. A little bit of a background that I know about the book is that initially you or you didn't intend to include a section about Assyrians. My first section is about who we are as Assyrians. And as it got close to completing it, I realized that if I'm going to put the word Assyrian in the title, I should talk more about Assyrians. But that book, it could be for any ethnicity. Mm. If I were to like one day I want to maybe republish it and just do the retelling of the uh, biblical story with an emphasis on ethnicity. Or from a cultural perspective. From a cultural perspective, I yes. Think that, yeah. yeah. There are so many different ways I could have gone with it, but I used the application of modern day Assyrians because that's the one, of course, I'm an Assyrian. Right. And what year was it that you published the book? 2015, 2015. or 14. In last week's episode, episode 50, you were talking about that. Yeah, in, episode 50. <laughs> you're talking about, you know, you, you thought of the idea of the podcast of November of 2017. Mm-hmm. But what were the moments that were leading up to that time that wanted to do that? Because there is a little bit of a gap. It's not like you had this book, you published it, you put it out there and you're like, hey, this probably isn't the most effective way that I want to inspire people or... So at what point between the book to then going to 2017, were you like, I have this idea of the podcast and I want to connect it with the Syrians? The book was a wonderful blessing, less because of how it impacted our community and more because of the rigor and the work that went into putting a book together. I felt proud about it and it helped me. It helped me in my career in the technology realm because I learned how to work harder because of it. Mm. Um, so I, I'm a firm believer in having come from a background where we were told to be a certain way and think a certain way and do a certain thing and wasn't necessarily me. With the book, I wasn't going to force it down anybody's throat. And I found very early on within the first six months, it just was not that popular. I mean, it was, thankfully. Like my family was wonderful. <laughs> There's so many people that came through and were loving and gracious and bought copies and shared copies and did book signings and flew me out and it was wonderful. I'm very thankful. But it wasn't necessarily making the impact, but I was okay with that because I felt like I should write that book and after I wrote it, I thought, well, I did what I was supposed to do. So if everyone else gets something out of it, great. And if they don't, that's okay. Maybe the point was not for them, it was for me and that's okay too. Mm -hmm. But I took five years, that's too long. And fail fast is a concept I've gotten, I've heard a lot. Fail fast, that way you move on to the next thing. When I first thought about writing my book, I was like, yeah, I'll do it in three weeks. Didn't do it in three weeks. 
my good friend Andy Thompson in Dallas was like, Steve, write a blog on each chapter. Just do a blog, publish a blog. If people like your blog and read your blog, then you know you should write this book. I was like, no, Andy, that's not a good idea. They're going to like this book. Spent five years writing the book. It didn't get, you know, I should have written a blog. But maybe I should have. I mean, I'm glad I did what I did. So the podcast, I had the idea and it, it was an easy idea. It made sense. Like get to know people who are Assyrians. And the thing our community needs, I think, more than anything is to be reminded of our goodness and to be reminded of what we bring to the world, to be reminded of this unique language that we have, this this expression, this not that it's better than other people or anything like that. It's different. And it's got value it's if people love it people love our culture they want to know more like oh you guys do this and that and so with the podcast it was um you it made a lot of sense to do it and I wanted to not do what I had done with a book I talked to more people about writing a book than I did spend time writing the book and with the podcast I wasn't ready to launch I had done the five interviews they weren't even edited and now that you know on the other side like these were just raw. I didn't know if they were even going to work or not. Mm-hmm. But I said, you know what? I'm going to launch. And if it dies, that's okay. And they didn't because of you and because of everyone else, as we talked about in episode 50. It's been fun. What do you envision for show 100? We hit the 50 mark, and let's say we go and we make it to, we will make it, hopefully. What do you envision? <laughs> You're like, yes, say what yes. What do you say yes? <laughs> I think we'll make it to episode 100, but I'm also thinking who knows where this thing could go because there are so many creative Assyrians out there. There are so many people out there who have ideas of how they could be a blessing to the world, not just Assyrians. So if there's someone who's got an idea of a different kind of podcast that they want to do or they want to do a movie or a book or whatever and we can help them, I mean – Let's let's figure out how to help people, how to encourage people, which is what the podcast is. And as far as episode 100 goes, I already told those co-hosts, and I didn't talk to you about this, but I told all the co-hosts, like, they're in charge of episode 100. Mm-hmm. So I didn't talk to you about that. Oh, we, I saw it in the WhatsApp group. <laughs> okay. Well, the thing is, is that was a hard episode 50 to put together. It was. So why don't we it just let them yeah. figure out episode 100? What I appreciate, what I have to say I appreciate about the podcast, and this is an episode 50, okay? What I appreciate about the podcast is what you had said was we had connected a few years ago at convention, and then this initiative happened, and then we went from not having seen or like talked to each other for years, and then like you're doing it on a weekly basis. And then as we added more and more team members on, I just stood back and I was like, dude, this is an awesome group of people. It very much feels like a true community, even amongst ourselves. And a community where we're able to encourage each other. People are inspired. People are proud of this project. So that's awesome that, you know, Steve, you were able to create something like this. Like that is a huge impact in the community, whether you thought of it in that way or not. Thank you. Thanks for that. And thankfully, too, not to, oh, you know, not to take credit or whatever. No, thank you for that. And the people, though, that we have on the show, they're what make the show special. 
Do you have a message for all of our listeners that are listening now as we end this conversation? Don't get mad at me about what I said about my religious perspective or non-religious perspective. I love mystery and um, I hope you do too. I want to encourage anybody that's listening to this episode to always make sure that they love and accept themselves wherever they're at in their life. You know, always love and accept yourself and put your best foot forward. Grace and mercy is important. None of us have it all together. Nobody's hands are clean. And um, thanks for, you know, all of your support of me and whoever is listening to this throughout the years. You know, you all know who you are that have made an impact on me because so many people who, when I was in seminary, sent me money mm. to help support me. Mm. And then people who have just been like, oh, Steve's doing something. Let me support Steve. Also, you 2 is the greatest band of all time, and they will help you with your theological ideas if you're ever struggling. The No Line on the Horizon album's a really good one. How to Dismantle an Atomic Bomb, if you haven't heard that one. I'm just having a ball, Odessa, because I'm never going to probably have this chance again on the Assyrian Spit podcast. It. All right, what else do I want to tell people? Um, uh, Zelda, Zelda 2 was one of my favorites on Super Nintendo. Let's see, wait, what else? Final Fantasy 3, oh my gosh, the storylines in there. Oh, I also really love chess, so if anybody wants to play chess. Um... Chess is a really good game for building empathy because you got to think about what the other person's thinking. Don't be afraid of life coaches. They're very helpful. Let's see, what else? This is like my... Oh, the Saints totally got robbed, and I was in New Orleans when they did win the Super Bowl <laughs> that year, and I had tickets booked for this year, so I was really upset when basically the game was fixed. Anyway, um... Wait, do I have anything else? You have the floor. You know, always love and respect everyone that you can and your family and your parents. Um, so anyway, thanks everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Assyrian Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe, review us wherever you listen to us, and spread the word to three other people who could benefit from listening. You can nominate people by going on our website at www.assyrianpodcast.com. Thanks, and see you all next week.